There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream. Uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be continuing my read-through of Stephen King's It. Uh, specifically, I'll look at uh, one interlude and one chapter. The interlude is the Dairy, the second interlude. Um, obviously, between the big sections of the book, there are these interlude chapters, which allow us to explore the history of Dairy. Um, and then we'll have... Uh, the reunion grown grown oh, grown-ups is the name of the of the whole part three of the book and i think the chapter is just called the reunion so this is the famous uh scene with the at the chinese restaurant so this chapter has always sort of bothered me it's messed with my interpretations of the books uh the book and and i don't know it's something i got to work out it's something that i just I don't quite know if King was like didn't fully think out what he what he wants to say or he wants to leave this ambiguous or if he wants to confuse us or he changed his mind as he wrote I don't know this is such a well planned out book it seems compared to some of the others that he wrote I I don't know I th- I got to believe everything is intentional here and, and and kind of since we are dealing with sort of cosmic forces the turtle and, and it, some of these questions maybe can't be answered very easily. But the losers don't have kids. The losers are rich. The losers forget uh, dairy. And how do I interpret this? I have a hard time seeing this these things as the work of the turtle. Why would the turtle not want the losers to recall childhood through the act of having a child? If remembering one's childhood is so important, why not have kids? Now, of course, King had kids by this point. He had three. He talks about them in the, his dedication. And is he thinking somehow that clouds our memory of our own past? And therefore, the act of having kids actually would interrupt their... I don't know. But it seems to me, if you don't want people to remember their past, their childhood, you wouldn't want them to have kids. And so it knows their memory is powerful. So we try to stop them to do that, right? That's what I said in the earlier episode. So maybe that's it. Um, Now the wealth. Uh, I also kind of said, well, the wealth will, that I can, like the child thing, okay. I'm happy with that because it's possible that it wants them to return to dairy, but doesn't want them to remember their childhood because it wants to kill them. Yeah, it clearly wants to kill them, but it's a risk for it. It was almost killed by the losers in 58, nearly killed. It's pretty clear in the text in this section, but it's clear by the end of the novel too. Um, So why have them come back at all? Revenge? That's the theory. Unfinished business. But it is a cosmic entity that lives for, for, for eternity. 
It can just wait another cycle, and the losers will all be will all have cancer and be decrepit. Is revenge that important? Now we don't get enough points of view from it for it to matter, but there I think I remember there are there seems to be evidence that they want them, um, that it wants them in dairy, wants to kill them, wants some sort of revenge. So anyways, back to their wealth. They're wealthy. Uh, and this is something Mike Hanlon brings up. You're all wealthy. Well, wealth seems a way to keep them away. Now, the other interpretation offered up by, I think, Mike Hanlon is that somehow their experiences as in 58, on some level, create, gave them the skills, the talent to succeed. All right. Now, we know Stephen King is a bit of a lib. He's not really anti-capitalist. He's actually quite a fearful of, of radical politics. So he's not a communist. He, he is sort of a, a standard lib Democrat, right? So he's not anti-capitalist in any sense. So he's not. But still, the point I'm trying to make is he seems to suggest in the text that they, they're skill, their knowledge, their bravery, whatever they get from 1958 that they bring with them into their adulthood allows them to succeed. This is said as much with uh, Ben Hanscom's weight loss. Okay, um, sure. But we're also told in that very same chapter, and I'm getting ahead of, I'm, I'm jumping right to what I need to think about in this episode. Mike Hanlon says specifically like, Yes, you're successful, but you're unnaturally universally successful, right? Like, yeah, it's totally plausible that someone's experience as a child will lead them to be a successful attorney or not attorney. I mean, a accountant. But would it make you the most successful accountant in the South? The way that's what Stanley is identified as. Would it make you one of the most famous writers in the world? Would it make you the like one of the greatest architects of your generation. The chances of all these people being in those positions of success just because they had this battle with it, it, it seems to give too much faith to this kind of Alger myth that one's success is purely a product of their character. When it's obviously not the case, right? And again, that's why I say King's obviously a lib. He's not a radical. He's not, a, he's not making a socialist critique. Uh, he's got plenty of critiques of America here, but it's not that directly all right um it seems to me much more plausible as a reader that their success is something that was cultivated or curated by it to keep them away now now i'm jumping ahead to what i'm going to talk about in the next episode because i'm probably going to come back to all this and i'm going to sweat over it and it's going to keep me up nights again i read this book i'm not scared it doesn't keep me up that way it keeps me up with this kind of thing i can't quite work out in my head it's the walking tours and I always complained about the movies about there's like, oh, let's scare the woozers and then wave, make a funny face, say some something, and then vanish. No, it's trying to kill them. But in the walking tours, it does seem it is trying to scare them away. Like the chapter with Ben in the library. Um, the chapter with the Paul Bunyan statue. Well, I guess it's, it's Pennywise that Richie sees as an adult. But he remembers the Paul Bunyan statue. The Paul Bunyan statue tried to kill him. Kill him. Pennywise on top of the Paul Bunyan statue or in the place of the Paul Bunyan statue was trying to scare him away. Spook him. 
So why would it go through all this trouble of curating their um, or why would it go through all the trouble of getting them there, encouraging them to come there, calling them? There's even that come home, come home, come home thing that we see in, um, I think it's in the reunion. The whole thing with, with George's picture coming out of nowhere. All of this seems to be calling them the losers back to Derry. Why would he do that and then turn around immediately and start trying to scare them? Separate, I guess. Divide and conquer. I don't know. Um, but wouldn't it be a lot easier just to send like fucking Henry Bowers to kill or kill Bev in Chicago? Why do they have to come to Derry to do it? Um, obviously, its power stretches beyond Derry. It stretches, he's able to influence Henry Bowers and Juniper Hill. So why can't he just tell, oh, go, here's, here's their addresses, go kill me. That's essentially what he does with the Derry townhouse, right? Especially what it does with the Derry townhouse. So I'm a bit, I don't know, if this is just one part of this book that's not as well planned out as the rest. It's, but it's something he brings up a lot, so we're meant to think about it. So I don't know. I'm bothered by that. But it comes up, these two issues of the child, of not having children, and not, and their success come up directly. Mike Hanlon brings it up. It's a big part of the conversation he has with them. Um, but anyways, let's, with that out of the way, maybe you can help me out. Maybe I'm just, maybe there's some line in the book that I'm missing or something. But I still don't know if it really wants them to return. I get the revenge, but it's it's not like a bunch of kids who are now loser adults, well, successful in any but they're, you know, they're just people, I mean, right? They're not that important in the scheme of things from its point of view. Why would I go through the trouble of seeking some kind of revenge when it, they, he, when, sorry, not he, when it knows the losers have the capacity to, to kill it. So I, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I keep thinking about this, but that's it. All right. Let's go talk about Derry the second interlude. Um, this is obviously we're back to Mike's point of view, writing as the local historian. Um, and he reveals like an important aspect of the cycle. So something he we was introduced in the first interlude chapter is this idea of the cycle. The his, local historians know about the cycle. This is every 20, 30 years or so, there's this uptick in death. But Mike Hanlon points out here, Derry's always violent. Derry's always shitty. It's just shittier. He even compares it to that thing mentioned in that short story, uh, the end of this whole mess. The town in Texas where it has really low levels of aggression and violence because of something in the water or whatever, that becomes a whole story. Um, I don't know if it's based on truth or not, but but this Derry's like whatever that is, it's the opposite, right? It's a town that's just by naturally violent and aggressive and full of shit. Um so even though you got the cycle, Derry itself is kind of a dark history, but that dark history is sort of hidden. Um, we get to this a little bit more in, in the reunion chapter two, cause it's, a um, that's a long chapter. <clears throat> but anyways, the thing about the cycle that we're introduced to in the second interlude chapter is that it ends with a violent catastrophe. 
And so the cycle that ended in 1930 was completed with the explosion at the black spot. An earlier one was ended with the, the Kitchener Ironwork explosion. Um, and if we go back in dairy history, we have like the murder of the entire, you know, the whole colony, the whole settler village of, of dairy. So we have all these examples. And again, I have to can't, can't help but say this. This is what that TV series should be. Uh, the one that's trying to look into Derry's past, it should be not just uh, looking at the previous cycle, I guess whatever, the 50s. It should go into this history. Um, go back to the origins of Derry. And and maybe it still will do that. I don't know. But I think it should be more of an anthology series than, than, than what it's what it seems to be doing. But but we'll, we'll, hold, we'll hold judgment, I guess. Although I don't have much faith in this... Uh, uh, whatever kind of film franchise or TV franchise they're trying to make out of this. Um, but I guess if it gets us a Dark Tower series someday, <laughs> it might be worth it. Anyways. Uh, so this one, this is how it ends. This is how the 30 cycle ends, is with this, uh, the, the fire at the black spot. Now this chapter also introduces us to um, um, Halloran. Um, What's his first name? Dick Halloran, right? Who's um, uh, was a soldier with uh, William Hanlon. So I got another Bill here, but this is we'll just call him William. William Hanlon, Mike Hanlon's father. Um, so this is a fun little side story because we, we we actually see uh, we witness uh, a little bit more of Mike's history after the events of '58. Uh, his him growing up. And him talking to his father as he's dying of, of cancer and it's really tragic of course to hear that but we also learn how uh william uh, hanlon is trying to like give mike bits, bits of Derry's past and his own his own personal history throughout his life it's stitched together pretty well and and so mike has to stitch together these stories from will hanlon's uh you know things he's told him throughout the years like early on it's just like oh telling him kind of the less the, the story that you know, black parents often have to tell their kids about the reality of racism in in the country that they live in. Uh, and then the, some aspects of the story he's deemed too young to hear, so it waits till he's older. And then as deathbed, he finally gets the whole story. So basically, we have a African American army unit. This is before the army was desegregated in the. Yeah, after World War II, yeah. so this is uh, this is 1930, and Will Hanlon is from a very poor family from the South, sent up to the military so he could send money back to his family. So uh, I think a not uncommon African American experience uh, connected to the Great Migration. So there's a part of American history that's not directly mentioned here, but it's certainly in the backdrop is this mass migration of Black people from the South to the North in the early decades of the 20th century that is driven by economic reasons, but the military would also have been one of the forces that, that relocated um, black families and individuals to, to the north, to northern cities. But here they go to Derry, because this is where the, the army unit is based. And there, black, the black soldiers are subject to all sorts of uh, indiscriminate uh, kind of uh, hostility by officers by the locals uh they do meet some people who are nicer but uh one aspect of this tension is that the bars are segregated here 
Now there is segregation in the north. It wasn't just a southern thing. Um, you know, towns had segregation laws. There's informal segregation laws. I don't know which was going on here in in Derry at the time, but obviously Derry is going to have the worst of America because that's what it is about. So they're not able to go to the bar and they sometimes get harassed. So eventually um, the officers are convinced to open up to let the black soldiers open up their own little place, the black spot, which is really just a informally made building. It's made with like like those sheet metal things on the side. It's a pretty uh, rough kind of bar. They're not supposed to, I think they're not supposed to drink, but they smuggle in liquor. This is still during Prohibition. But the white officers all, all can get liquor. That inequality is mentioned for sure. Um, but it becomes a popular place. It becomes popular because of jazz music. And so that's another little aspect of American history here. How uh, African-American music began to spread to white audiences. And we get a little taste of it here. Um, and then you have this organization, uh, a racist organization called the... Uh, what was it called again? Is it some kind of white pride or... Oh, I remember now. It's the League of, of White Decency or something. It's basically like the Northern Clan. That's how Will Hanlon talks about it. And that's essentially what it is. So we get the story of that. And then we get a description of Dick and Will's survival of this event. But most of the people at the Black Spot were killed in the fire. That was caused by these uh, this racist mob. We also get other bits of history about how he like started his farm, how why he returned to Derry after this event, after he served in the military. He actually got part of his foot shot off, blown off with a grenade, and uh, got his military pension or whatever, and, and used what money he saved up to buy a farm, wanted to buy it in Derry for whatever reason. The turtle is the reason he wants to buy the farm there, I guess. The turtle trying to bring the right people at the right time to to dairy remember like mike hanlon is the least organically introduced to the losers all the rest are are like our acquaintances or know each other or have some sort of connection that draws them together uh mike hanlon's at a totally different school actually so he doesn't even have any friendship with them but he's literally pushed there by outside forces the same way the losers are pushed into the sewers at the end of the book so him being there is is somehow important for the turtle and I think it's suggested in this chapter too, in Will's conversation, that he doesn't—he feels somehow he was drawn to Derry. Um, but he talks about his relationship with the Bowers, who are like the, a poor white family near his, a less successful uh, example of of uh, of a farming family in New England. So, anyways, we get all this history, and what does any of this have to do with it? Well, it's the end of a cycle, and this. I guess could have worked if it just was this. Just this is how shitty people in Derry are. But Stephen King can't avoid throwing in a throwing in the supernatural into this scene more directly. And so Will Hanlon has a memory of seeing a bird, presumably the same bird that Mike sees later on at the next cycle, kill someone fleeing from the black spot. So basically, pick pick up this person like a. Like a giant bird just literally picking up a person like like a bird would pick up a mouse or something. And he doesn't totally believe it, but he still has the memory of it, the really conscious memory of it. And he shares that with, with Mike Hanlon as well. 
Uh, and that's more or less what we get in this inner loop chapter. Um, it's got great stuff. I just think it's so significant how King makes history part of this book about memory. It is so important to the storytelling. And I think it's some of my most favorite parts of, of the book. Uh, and this is one of my, actually, what I'm, it's not my favorite interlude chapter. That'd be the, the fourth interlude was probably my favorite. But they just add so much to the story. I think it'd be a very different book, and it would feel different without those interludes. It'd be it'd be a lesser book without those. Um, so that's uh, the story of the Black Spot. And now, meanwhile, Mike's been, in, while he writes these interlude chapters, he seems to be stalling. Stalling for time. Stalling to avoid calling the others. He keeps talking about that. Like, like, if there's one more murder, I'll call them says things like this um, but he actually sees a balloon float into his into the, the library where he's working and writing this stuff and it explodes I mean that's pretty definitive evidence if you're Mike Hanley I don't know how you kind of weasel your way out of that um, but the this interlude chapter is dated February 28th 1985 so it's going to be another three months before he finally does call the other losers, before he's in his mind 100% sure. But I don't know. The balloon's got to be pretty decisive. So um, not to say that Mike's a coward or anything, but that, or that he's just being overly careful. It's just, it's hard. I imagine it's, it's hard for you to call someone from your past a childhood friend if you're not asking them to do something crazy, right? It's, it's a difficult thing to do. So anyways... That's all. I, uh, well, I, I guess I did write down some questions here. Um, uh, I guess one issue that comes up is, is the, you know, to what degree are police deliberately covering up the connections between the murders? Because um, that that's, some of that is talked about here in the second interlude. Um, is it connected to their adulthood? Why they can't see the connections? Like how Al Marsh couldn't see the blood? Or is it willful ignorance. I think Mike Hanlon seems to think there's a degree of willfulness in the behavior of dairy residents. Um, and what I love about this chapter is how the history of dairy gets rewritten by historians, in this case, Mike Hanlon. And the whole story by people, well, when people in power this is like a Lovecraftian question. Like in Lovecraft, if you have the power, the ability to do this, you cover up the past, you hide it. You, you zap Joseph Kerwin into dust, sweep him up, throw him in the garbage, right? So he can never come back. Kings seems to not be happy with that answer. That's clear. Instead, we have history being rewritten by the people in power to erase horrors of all sorts, slavery, genocide or whatever. The jingoistic history we get in textbooks. And then that makes like Mike Hanlon so powerful in he's writing the he's almost like writing the people's history of dairy in a way, or the the true history of dairy. And you know, it's it's a war between historical narratives. And I think that is reflected in how we appreciate the past of our own countries, whatever that may be, right? We tend to downplay our sins. Uh, rise up our greatest moments 
you know, all for the purpose of patriotism or whatever, right? There's propaganda involved in how we think about history. And I think King with these interlude chapters is saying you need, must be true to your history, right? And to the degree that this novel is an allegory of America and American history, I think this is an important chapter. All these interlude chapters are important for that reason because it's, it's Hanlon writing down the true history of Derry, right? Remember earlier in the first interlude chapter, one of the characters says something like, like you could spend 20 years researching the history of Derry, but no one would read it. Um, but yeah, you still got to write it down, right? All right, so that's that point. Um, I guess it's just, you know, why, why does it appear to Will Hanlon in the same form? It would later appear to Mike. Mike seems to think he's seen Rodan, but he's actually seen what his father saw before. So there, I guess there's an issue with it that he seems a little... Sorry. It seems a little like its powers are not very well defined. Um, like it can affect, it can certainly reach outside dairy. It can mind control people. Um, it knows our fears. It's also really up on pop culture and weird references. It's, it really is kind of the apotheosis of terror. So King just uses it however it want, however he wants to 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 make his point or create the scary moment. But but that's fine, I guess. It works. Um, now, of course, racial violence is not supernatural. It's a real part of of U.S. history. So again, I think this chapter almost works without the bird at the end. Uh, all right, now let's do the reunion. Um, let me be quick here, I think, because I've already sort of complained about what's bothering me about this chapter. But this chapter is in six parts, just like chapter 11 is in six parts and chapter 12 is in a bunch of parts, too. Uh, this is actually like six different chapters in the reunion. Uh, so basically, long story short, the losers all arrive in Derry in, in 85 days after the calls. Bill arrived last, having taken the, the flight from England. He takes a taxi ride, and we see the changes in the town. So that's the point here. Derry's changed, and it's the same at some point. Some things, like the canal, are still there. Derry Town also is still there. But there's a bunch of new things. The town has expanded a little bit. It, despite all the violence and horror of the town, it's got prosperity. And they go to the mod, this modern Chinese restaurant that you know in a place that was built over by development. So we get a little... Uh, stuff about urban development. Mike chooses this place because it didn't exist in the 1950s. Um, ben then tells a story about how he gained more weight in junior high. Well, the, the losers all meet and they notice Stan Uris is gone. They get the news that Stan Uris had killed himself. But Ben tells the story of how he gained more weight in junior high school, but eventually lost it. It's a nice story. And it's, I guess the theme here is the power of the events of 58 you know, inspired him to be strong in this. You know, this is a small thing compared to what they faced in 58. So it's all part of kind of memory and when they started to lose the memories of 58 and, and how those memories, to the degree they exist, can empower them in the present. Um, they debate forces seem to be pulled together and the forces that seem to keep them from having children and have made most of them wealthy. I, 
I guess I've already said my piece about this, that I'm not sure how to, what to make of all these things. I know they're incredibly important because they keep coming up in the book. And I know maturation and adulthood is part of the story. And uh, it's actually what the whole story is about. But it's something is in here and I'm missing it, I think. Am I just stupid? It could be. could be I'm just dumb. Um, but Mike then, un, you know, lays everything on the table about all the murders, and there's been nine of them, I think, that he confirms are were, were caused by it. And there's a lot of nice banter between the losers and all this, and and they seem to kind of get back into their old pace of when they were kids, which is a good sign. Uh, Mike says you need to sort of, you know, experience Daria on your own again because they all encountered it on their own so he encourages them all to take these walking tours of dairy or just go wherever they're motivated to go and see what happens and that's what they then they leave but first they have their dessert in which their fortune cookies all are, uh, become manifestations of it appearing to them as various kinds of uh, of their fears um, bugs and weird gross things and blood in one case um, but after this, the losers agree to explore Derry alone in hopes of being reacquainted with the horror. Um, and they set off to do that. So that sets up the walking tours chapter. Um, now, a lot of what Mike explains to them, we already sort of already know as readers about the cycle, about uh, the, you know, the way it feeds, about how they almost killed it in 58. So there's this is a lot of this is to maybe uh, set up the second half of the novel which is all going to be about let's tooth and nail our way to getting these memories back because a lot of this too is like they don't remember much they remember what were in those earlier chapters the flashback chapters they remember the dam they remember the werewolf maybe they remember the mummy or the leper the blood they remember bits but they don't remember the whole summer and they certain even mike who stayed in Derry, says he doesn't remember uh much in august so there's still like this blank especially for august of uh, 58 but even july and slowly they're going to get those memories in some of my favorite chapters in the book as we'll see in future episodes but they decide to do that now in the movie version they're supposed to go and find like a little knickknack um of their of their past it's kind of lame because they're going to burn it and stupid dumb but it's the same sort of idea it's just done better here because it's just about you need to remember and the only way you're going to do that is by facing this on your own so not much to say in terms of questions here uh obviously dairy's changed it's grown it's become even more prosperous and again i think there's that other like metaphor of america that this prosperity of dairy is built on horrors just like the prosperity of america is built on horrors um yeah but there's always change the town always changes but it is a continuation throughout it um now there is evidence that the supernatural has played a role in the lives of the losers since 58 um so we got mike saying you're all rich you haven't had children um is this the white is it the turtle is it it doing it i still don't know but clearly the supernatural ha is lived on it's not only appears for a year and a half every 27 years 
It's it has powers even when it's slumbering, right? I guess I haven't mentioned Cthulhu. It is sort of like one of these slumbering ancient gods of of love. Uh, you know, it's a very Lovecraftian entity. Entity. So um, now Bill enters the room and sees the losers as they were as children. This is nice because we see other ways our heroes become their childhood versions again. Like, you know, whether it's the grabbing the aspirator, Eddie grabbing the aspirator, or um, Richie kind of flipping the glasses up, even though he's not wearing contact lenses, right? Um, at some point, he has to take the contact lenses out because he starts to remember the smoke hole and have the burning in his eyes. Um, you know, Bev smoking again. These are all little signs of of their childhood coming back. And that's another good sign that's hopeful for our heroes. Um, and that's it. I guess we could break down the various forms it takes during the fortune cookie dessert. But what's significant for this for me is that these are adult fears that it's taking the form of more than it is the childhood fears. Like I think one of them is it the one that Ben sees some kind of weird fly or a bug and it's like that's something that was bothering him in in his adulthood. So it is able to use adult fears sometimes, but they're not as potent, I guess, as as they would if they were taking the form uh, that scare children. And the real things that f that adults are scared of: the mortgage, the the repo man, the divorce papers, the you know the call the HR office, whatever that is, that it really can't take those forms. Although that would be hilarious. It takes the form of a, the call to the HR office. Because <laughs> that's really fucking scary. All right. That's it. I'm going to... So this is actually... I threw this episode pretty quickly. But that's fine. I'm sure there'll be long ones coming up. Um, I guess that maybe partially because I covered so much ground up to this point that we can kind of speed up things a little bit in how we read it um, because it's pretty clear where things are going. In the next episode, I'll finish up the the grown-ups uh, section with the walking tours, and that's also in six parts. It's a big, long chapter. It's another 100-page chapter or so. And then three uninvited guests. Now, that chapter is simply set up. It's simply put getting uh, Tom Rogan and Audra and Henry Bowers, particularly Henry Bowers, where they need to be. Uh, they're all being pulled there by it, apparently. So it's well, it's it's not the best chapter in the book, but it's and in fact the book would work almost without this. Henry Bowers, I guess, has there's some significance to him being there, but even that, you don't really need him. You don't, you know you don't need that scene. I guess it splits up the losers a little bit more. By taking uh, Mike out of the game, so he does sort of do does does his job, gives it a fighting chance, but obviously, obviously it doesn't work. But certainly it seems to be manipulating Tom Rogan. Um, but there's a lot of cool stuff in the walking tours um, chapters, I think, or chapter. And so yeah, that's what we'll talk about next time. So, anyways, uh, thanks for uh, listening. Uh, let me know what you think, especially with those things I struggled with in the early part of this episode. If you have thoughts about any of this, let me know. If I'm reading it completely wrong or if I'm missing some obvious thing, just let me know. I will be very grateful, actually. So that's it. See you next time. Actually, next time will be Civil War stuff again, but uh, in in a week or so, I'll 
be here with a little bit more. I guess it'll be episode six of Aretha the Novel. We'll be in the second half of that of the book by that point. Going so see you then. Bye bye. Where the broken hearts stay Going down to lonesome town To cry my troubles away In the town